Well, we come back to our study of Revelation, but our reading is in Daniel this morning. So if you're a regular and you're looking for Revelation, this is what we call an excursus. That is, uh, uh, there have been a number of questions that have been asked, how do we know we're interpreting Revelation correctly, number one? And how do we know we're applying Revelation correctly? And uh, the answer really is in the book of Daniel, which informs most of the book of Revelation, as we shall see. We're reading from Daniel then, chapter 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirring up a great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it in its ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me 
He made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings, and he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Fast forward to Revelation. Let me remind those of you who've come regularly and those who are here for the first time We've been looking at Revelation, a group of passages beginning in chapter 12, where we were introduced to the bride of Christ, the church, the woman, from which every Christian, uh, to which every Christian looks as their spiritual mother. That woman represents Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the wife of Jehovah, Eve, our mother and uh, the church that gives us life. That's what Paul says, that heavenly Jerusalem is the mother of us all. And the church has been, from the very beginning in the book of Revelation, uppermost in the mind of the apostle John, because the church is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation and its teaching. The same is true in Daniel. From the very beginning of the book of Daniel, we are uh, presented with the church in Daniel's day, the Israel of God then, just as the church today is the Israel of God continuing. Israel, that is the church, is both the object of our Father's love 
and the object of our enemies' ire. And so in Revelation 13, we were introduced to our primary enemy. Our primary enemy is not any government official. Our primary enemy is not flesh and blood. Our primary enemy is the devil and Satan, the serpent, the dragon, as it's described. That's our primary enemy. And the church, the church is a primary article of faith in our creed and in our confession. So therefore, the church is of vital significance to us. We confess the church whenever we confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our creed Sunday by Sunday. Because their joy, the Holy Trinity's joy, is the church of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, the book begins with this, by describing seven churches. The whole book of Revelation is a letter sent to the church in its fullness. The number seven denotes fullness, completeness. Those seven churches represent all the churches of Jesus Christ from Jesus' day till Jesus comes back. And the book of Revelation is a letter sent to the church. It's a letter sent to this church in Philadelphia. There's a little letter in there to Philadelphia, but it's not our Philadelphia. But the whole book is a letter to the church here in Philadelphia. Because God is working in the world through His church. Everything God does in history, God does in relation to His church. Everything that happens in history. I said this, I think, the first Sunday into lockdown. Everything that happens in history, including the pandemic, we know that whatever else was going on in the world, God was using that to purify His church. He uses everything to purify His church. He only has one goal in the world, and that is that His church be presented to Him spotless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And He's about that purifying influence upon His church. Now, Revelation 13 is shaped by Daniel chapter 7. These pictures there, these are four kingdoms, four empires. And we know if we fast forward to chapter 8, precisely what these empires were. In chapter 8, they're named Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the fourth is not named. But we know it to be Rome, these great empires of that period. And uh, we took time to explain the significance of the beasts in Revelation 13 in relation to Daniel chapter 7 because the descriptions of them in Revelation are taken directly from Daniel chapter 7. And I wanted to help you to see how Daniel lays the foundation for our interpretation of Revelation chapter 13 and indeed much of Revelation. 
Uh, Greg Beale, in, in one of his books, points this out, that in Daniel 7 and, thir- and Revelation 13, we find an agent stepping forward, taking center stage, power being given to that agent, and then we're told of the effect of that power as the agent puts it into effect. So, the Son of Man, here in chapter 7, the Son of Man comes forward. He is given authority, and the effect of His use of that authority is that all peoples, nations, and tongues serve Him, and He possesses an everlasting kingdom. Similarly with these four beasts. They come forward, four great beasts coming out of the sea. The first is lifted up and made to stand. The second is raised up and told to devour all flesh. The third is given dominion. The fourth, we're told, is different from the others. And we, are descri- we have this described for us the effects of its authority that are spelled out, including the fact that he makes war against the saints. In Revelation 13, the two beasts represent the final Antichrist, but all the provisional Antichrists up until he comes, and the final false prophet, and all the other provisional false prophets leading up to that final day. And we're told that the goal of Antichrist at every point in history, but principally at the end, is to lead the world into the universal worship of Satan, whether they know it or not. Now, why does the Holy Spirit draw these parallels? It's because of the church. In Revelation, you need to keep going back, if you want the key to understanding what's happening in the book, keep going back to chapters 2 and 3, where we find there churches affected by apostasy and compromise and syncretism, that is the merging of the world's philosophy and Christian philosophy. And what is true, you see, in the book of Revelation comes straight out of Daniel. The book of Daniel does the same thing. The book of Daniel begins by describing Israel as it is taken into exile and judgment. Right at the very beginning, the book opens with these words, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Listen to this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels taken from the temple of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Right at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, we're taken back in history to the time of the exile. And we're given the answer to the question, why did God allow the church, Israel, at that point to be taken into exile? And the answer is the same answer as is given in Revelation 2 and 3. And it has to do with apostasy and compromise and syncretism. 
as they kind of try to marry the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of the local deities, as they try to merge and synchronize that into a new form of worship. That is the ongoing challenge, isn't it, in our day? And one of the things that we're very prone to worship is power. Whether it's the power of a corporation, or an institution, or a government, or a universal world government, power is an aphrodisiac. It's something we seek after. Greg Beale puts it like this. The corrupt system is characterized by the blasphemy of rulers who claim deity and by the apostasy of so-called Christians who acquiesce in the compromising demands of emperor worship and of the institutions of pagan society. That's what we find in Daniel, and that's what we find in Revelation. And in Daniel, those believers or professors to believe who go along with pagan society are described in chapter 11 as forsaking the holy covenant. They're called hypocrites there. And we discover that the deception not only comes from outside, but from within the church, as in Daniel chapter 11, 32, the apostates from within the church are the ones who seduce the faithful. And the same thing is happening in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So salutary beginning of Daniel and the salutary beginning of Revelation tells us that the things that are going on in the world are not so much that God is concerned about the world. He is concerned, passionately concerned, about His bride, the church. Now, when we look back at the, look at the book of Daniel then, we see Revelation 13 taking these four kingdoms. And the four kingdoms, by the way, have been introduced earlier in the book, and I want to tell you the story of how that happens. But I want to ask the question as we begin, how are we to apply this to ourselves? This teaching that we've been given, I've been trying to do that, make the application clear, but I now want to show you why I've applied it the way I have applied it up to this point. And the clues are in Daniel. So chapter 1 of Daniel begins with us being told that Uh, The Jews' king has been killed. The Jews are going into exile. That's an interesting… I checked this out. I was given a a hint by one of our interns this week of a direction to think in my sermon. We We have a preacher's meeting on a Tuesday where we discuss what's going on, what's going to be preached on the Sunday, and usually the preacher gives the points and so on. And we talk that over, and it's a great time we have together. And in that conversation, I was reminded to go back and look at the minutes of the Westminster Assembly that drew up our confession and our catechisms. And uh, you find there in the minutes of the meeting that there were in the General Assembly of the church uh, at that period basically two groups that were dealing with the issue of 
so the church is the Israel of God. The Bible teaches that. The church is the Israel of God. Paul puts it in those terms. But in what sense? And the big question was, Israel, when? Israel during the monarchy? Or Israel in exile? And there were those in the General Assembly at that time who believed that it was Israel during the monarchy and that what the church needed was a monarch, a Christian monarch, who would uh, get involved whenever the church needed kind of the, an adjudicator, if you will, and, uh, and so on. They wanted basically state power to be involved in the church, and they gave away a lot of power to the state. But then there was another branch of people, those who believed the church was in exile. Now, we come to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel have found that the whole period in which Israel had kings was a disaster. Even David was a disaster. And Solomon, the all-wise, was a disaster. And after that, everything went to the dogs. The same happened to those people who were at the Westminster Assembly. Uh, Charles II came to the throne, was welcomed by the church in Scotland in Edinburgh as uh, a champion of the Reformed cause. He went and took power in England, and he sent his troops to bar the churches of uh, the Presbyterians uh, to try to impose the prayer book. The issue for the Presbyterians was not the prayers and the prayer book, but the imposition of it and the imposition of bishops and so on. And for six years, the killing times, where thousands upon thousands of uh, Bible-believing Christians were slaughtered. Where I lived in Scotland, there were indications of this all over the place. I, I remember stumbling across I, I, there was something I could see behind some ivy, and I pulled the ivy down, and there was a plaque to four young men, who had teenagers, who had been shot dead by troops. Believers. And uh, it's very important that we understand that the biblical perspective is that the church is Israel in exile. Read First Peter to those in exile, the exiles of the dispersion. Read Hebrews and read Daniel. Daniel and his three friends are taken into exile. They go to Babylon and they're given an education, finest education available in Babylon. They're in the King's University there. They're going to learn all about the science and the literature and the languages of Babylon. They're going to graduate with high honors and get a job right at the very center of power and, in fact, are going to be advisors to the emperor himself. But right at the very beginning of their time there, they do this thing, which if you know the story, you'll know that they decide 
because part of the joy of going to university in Babylon was not only did you have very nice accommodations, not only was your university opposite the king's palace, but you actually got to eat the kind of food the king was eating. You got food from the king's table. And Daniel and his friends decided that the steaks that came from the king's table were just far too succulent. They were just amazing. Uh, They wouldn't eat them. They would eat the vegetables instead. It's incoherent to me why they would do that, but there there you go. And everybody's come up with an idea, well, it was because the meat wasn't done in a kosher way. Well, it was done the same way vegetables were done. And what we do know is that Babylon prepared its meat exactly the same way as Jews did, and so therefore it was as kosher as the vegetables would have been. It had nothing to do with the meat. What we discover is that these men found themselves in this alien environment. They found themselves believing in God and in a society that did not believe in God. They realized that they were very privileged to be at the university. They realized if they worked hard, they'd get good jobs at the end of it. And so they resolved together that they would be sure that they never felt any sense of dependence on the king, but rather on the king of kings. And now if you read the story, you'll notice that Daniel and his friends were not rebels. They even asked permission if they could do this, if they could abstain from the meat and just of the vegetables. And they said to the man who was in charge of them, just observe us over a period and see whether we suffer from not having any meat. The Lord was with them. He had to be with them. The vegetables were enough, and they flourished on the vegetables. We know that this is not what they did. I mean, later on, they were eating meat later on. This was right at the very beginning. It was drawing a little line. If you want to know any details of this, there's a whole series that I preached here in Daniel sometime in the past. So what Daniel shows us, you see, is you can be perfectly nice and compliant and enter into life here. In fact, Daniel and his friends were influenced in their behavior by a letter sent to them by Jeremiah the prophet. You can read the letter. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it told them to go there, to settle down, to get married, to have children, to build a house, and to seek the welfare of Babylon. And there's a sense in which that's our calling, isn't it, here in, in this Babylon, in the place where we find ourselves. We, we, seek, we seek the betterment, the... the uh, the good of the city we live in and the country we live in. And that's a good thing. But Daniel and his friends not only were faithful in doing that, but also Daniel and his friends never forgot the kingdom of God. And so therefore, we read in chapter 2 that when Daniel faced a crisis, he He went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. 
We need one another in the living of the Christian life. We need fellowship. You need two or three people that you really know and know well, people you can confide in, people you can share life with, people you can go to to pray with you. It's absolutely vital that we have Christian fellowship. We love coming to church on Sunday, but there's a lot of people here. You can't get to know all of these people. You wouldn't want to know some of them. But see, (laughs) kidding, kidding. You need to know people that you can pray with and who will be with you in the journey, as it were, of your life. And Daniel and his three friends knew that kind of fellowship. Fellowship with one another is a vital aspect of surviving in Antichrist's kingdom. And then one day, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was very wise. He came to his advisors. His advisors said, he said to them, I've had a dream. They said to him, great, we can interpret your dream. So Nebuchadnezzar said to to them, well, you tell me my dream and then give me the interpretation. They freaked out. They said, that's ridiculous. You need to tell us a dream first before we can tell you what it's about. Oh, no, 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 he said. How can I trust your interpretation if you can't tell me what my dream was? And they were terrified, and he threatened to kill them all until Daniel intervened. You know the the story of this. And Daniel came and told the king his dream. You dreamed of a great image, a human figure, massive, great statue. The head was of fine gold. The breast and the arms were of silver. The belly and the thighs of bronze. The legs of iron and the feet partly of iron and clay. Daniel gave the interpretation. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. These are four kingdoms. You are the head of of gold. To whom God has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And in the days of the fourth kingdom, the little stone coming from the west, from the direction of Jerusalem, will come down a mountain and and shall grow in size until it comes and it crushes that image. Here's the words, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Parallel is there with chapter 7 that we read, when the Son of Man is given an eternal kingdom. Is Daniel, he has a chance to talk to the king. And what does he talk to the king about? Well, he talks to the king about the kingdom of God. He's respectful. He's helpful. But he doesn't hold back. This kingdom of God will destroy all the kingdoms of men eventually. Kingdoms may rise. Kingdoms may fall. Nations refuse to heed God's call. But the word of the Lord endureth forevermore. Daniel himself was going to live to see the Babylonian kingdom fall, and the Medo-Persians would take over. But in all of these chapters, beginning in chapter 2, and you saw it in chapter 7, 
And you can see it again in chapter 8 and later on in chapter 11. The focus is on that final kingdom. Now, we know it's Rome, but it's more than Rome. And that's where its relationship to Revelation comes in. What grips Daniel's attention is the ten horns, and especially the little horn that grows up, that has eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is an individual. And for all that this individual is human, it is dominated by pride and self-glory. Here is, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, autonomous humanity about to embark in a cataclysmic conflict with a sovereign God. Actually, there are two little horns, if you read it very carefully, two little horns, one during the Greek period and then one in this last period, which begins with Rome and extends to the end of history. The first little horn we can actually name. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Greek, one of the rulers, after Alexander the Great died. And after an unsuccessful uh, war with uh, Egypt, which Egypt won, he went to Israel, he went to the Promised Land, and he took out his anger and frustration on the Jews. He sent 20,000 of his troops to massacre the worshipers as they gathered on the Sabbath day. He killed 40,000 in three days. He entered the Holy of Holies. He offered a pig on the altar. He placed uh, Zeus, a statue of Zeus, the pagan god, in the temple. In other words, He desecrated the church of God. He desecrated the church of God. And so Antiochus Epiphanes becomes the model, if you will, of what the Antichrist will do in an absolute sense when he comes in the future. In chapter 11, The whole flow of the passage moves from Antiochus Epiphanes to description of the Antichrist and all the interim Antichrists until the end of history. Ferguson spells out the features of Antichrist, his autonomy. The king shall do according to his will and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Like the atheist who said, there is no God, and if there was one, how could I bear not to be that God? There's autonomy and blasphemy. The king shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. There's inhumanity. In verse 39, he shall regard not the desire of women. Many of the provisional antichrists in history has mistreated horribly the women in their lives, their mothers or sisters or wives or daughters. Sinclair Ferguson writes, God made humanity, male and female, interrelated, interdependent to reflect His glory. There is nothing more basic to human life 
biologically, psychologically, emotionally, and socially than the male-female human nature. Human nature. There's only one human nature. The love of women in Samuel, 2 Samuel 21, is synonymous with deep and lasting affection and devotion. That's what women represent. Antichrist regards not the desire of women. He has no regard. No wonder he is portrayed as a beast. And then fourthly, might is right. Raw power. A god of fortresses is what he worships. Verse 38. In other words, when Antichrist comes, let's put it like this, sin, which fluctuates really throughout history, at periods where there's a lot of obvious sin going around, war uh, and violence and so forth, and other times when it's kind of muted. But when Antichrist comes, as it were, sin will have reached its maturity Basically, anything you can do that is against the law of God, you'll be able to do with impunity from the top down. So, sin reaches its maturity. And then from chapter 11, 41 to 45, Daniel paints a picture of Antichrist's end. Basically, it it just kind of withers to a conclusion. And the narrative is cut short. The story of Antiochus Epiphanes just kind of wanders off. After he's done all these amazing things, dreadful things, he just kind of goes off into the blue and he disappears, as it were, inauspiciously. And Antichrist's end is inauspicious and anticlimactic as well. The process of evil will simply stop. And how will that happen? Apostle Paul tells us the Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And we'd be wrong to think that Antichrist's actions and successes are only military. Ferguson puts it like this, the principle of might is right can also be manifested in financial and intellectual and moral terms and social terms as it is in military terms. How do we respond to this? Well, we don't respond to this by kind of going away and trying to create an alternative society somewhere in northwest America, uh, Idaho, or somewhere like that. That's not the way. We don't become a crowd of survivalists who opt out the world and go and do our own thing. Now we'll go back to the story of Daniel. Where are we to be? In the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. How are we to react? Do we take up arms? We may have to take up arms against 
uh, an enemy as citizens of this country at some stage. But do we take up arms as the church? Well, look at Daniel and his friends. Throughout the period of church history, there will be moments that will arise as arose in chapter 3 of Daniel, where the king gets this bright idea of a statue that he will build to himself, and he will just ask everybody to bow down and worship him. Daniel's three friends don't. They don't do ostentatiously. They don't have a big protest march so that everybody can see and the television lights are blazing and everybody's got their iPhone taking pictures of it as they ostentatiously refuse to bow down to the, to the great idol and they're bowing down to their own God. They don't do that. They just quietly don't bow down to the idol. Somebody tells on them, of course, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Later on, once the Persians are in power, somebody's plotting against Daniel specifically and sets him up by introducing a law that he gets the king to sign, saying that if anybody prays to anybody else other than to him, the king, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. Now, Daniel continues praying the way he's always prayed, at his window facing towards Jerusalem. In other words, making a statement that Jerusalem is my home, Jerusalem, as we say, New Jerusalem is our home. And he's thrown into the lion's den. Those two supernatural events that happen, that is, a fourth person joining Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedwego, I mean Abednego, that was a joke. Billy Graham once said that by mistake. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fourth person that was present with him, was for a reason to remind us that whenever we go through something like this, the Lord will be with us in the crisis. And Daniel, in the lion's den, the lions hadn't been fed. There was Daniel. Billy Graham once said that Daniel, Daniel's backbone was so tough and his other bones were so gristy and that the, the lions didn't think he would be a good meal after all. Both of those incidents are to remind you that whatever we are called upon to do, God will be with us in it. He will deliver us. He will deliver us into his everlasting kingdom. We're exiles. The kingdoms of this world come and go. The church over the last 2,000 years has seen kingdoms rise and fall. When I was a little boy at school, there was a map behind my school teacher's desk, a big map. And there at the center of the map, looking actually about 10 times bigger than it really was, was the British Isles. I mean, it should have looked like that, and it looked like that. The British, it was pink. And then away to the left here, a great blob of pink where Canada was. And if it hadn't been for some pesky colonists, it would have gone right down to the Gulf Coast. But there it was, there. And then to the, to the east, 
At that time, India, Pakistan, southern Africa, all pink. The British Empire, the sun rose and set on the British Empire. Well, there hasn't been a British Empire for a long, long, long time. Kingdoms come and go. The church has seen the rise and fall of Rome. The church has seen the rise and fall of the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese Empire and the English Empire and the German German Reich. It's all come and gone. Because our kingdom, you see, belongs somewhere else. We wait for Jesus to return. And meanwhile, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual and mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live well. And in a way, Lord, that helps our people in this country to flourish. But also in a way, Lord, that protects and defends your church from seduction and from uh, uh, having the world too much with us. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us nearer to you through the preaching of the Word and fellowship with one another. And now, Lord, feeding us at your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.